This is the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, the host and creator of this podcast that takes a look back at some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters. Thank you for tuning in to listen to another Notorious Bakersfield story. Remember to follow this podcast's social media pages. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to us on whichever podcast app you use to listen to podcasts. Notorious Bakersfield is on Apple, Spotify, Google, every podcast app that's available. If you'd like to email me with suggestions for stories you'd like me to cover, email me at NotoriousBakersfield at gmail.com. Or go to NotoriousBakersfield.com and contact me through the website. Starting a new thing on Notorious Bakersfield where I answer listeners' questions. Um, I got two of them this week from uh, two different Notorious Bakersfield listeners, Angelica and Belinda. So here's the questions. The first one from Angelica. Hi, I'm a 17-year-old. I live in Bakersfield, and I was recently introduced to your podcast by my father, who speaks so highly of your podcasts. And so, But I have been like binge reading them or listening to them. Anywho, my question is, has there ever been any information that you have found on certain cases or crimes or situations that you purposely left out of the podcast? Like maybe you just didn't think it'd be suitable or just things like that. And if so, what was the reason on why? Or even an example on maybe some information that you have left out before on previous podcasts. Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you. So have I left out details or information purposely on stories I've covered? Um, yes, I have. Um, first of all, let me give some background to why. Uh, I live in Bakersfield. I eat in restaurants here. I shop in the stores here in the community. Chances are at some point I may cross paths with a survivor of, vic of a victim whose story I have covered. These survivors or loved ones have already been traumatized enough. The last thing I want to do is re-traumatize a family member or loved one. It's bad enough I'm, I'm you know, covering this dark history that their loved one was a part of. Having said that, I try to be as respectful and sensitive to these victims and their survivors as possible. I'm not going to get into unnecessary gory details of a murder. Unless it's important to a story, there's no need for me to get into those details. I just don't feel comfortable doing that. Uh, another thing, protocols and policies for news media has changed drastically over the years, especially regarding juveniles. As recently as 15 years ago, the media had no qualms about naming suspects who were under 18 years of age. And I'm not talking about murder suspects. I'm talking about uh, 
minors who were accessories or just implicated in a crime. I won't do that. An example that comes to mind, episode seven, Stranger Than Fiction, due to the wife's coercion and manipulation, the entire family conspired to murder the victim, Eddie Peel. The the wife, the kids, even a neighborhood kid. And the Bakersfield Californian published everyone's name. Um, that was 1977. I chose to only use the real name of one kid, the kid, the, the child of the victim who pulled the trigger. I changed the name of all the other vet juveniles who played a role in that murder. The names are out there. They're easily found, but I didn't want people to find out the names from Notorious Bakersfield. Another case I covered where I left out details was an unsolved murder. I found the, a victim's relative. Um, out of the blue, I contacted her, and it creeped her out big time. She absol absolutely didn't want to be interviewed. On the record, off the record, didn't want any part of it. Just me contacting her 30, 35 years later really made her uneasy because the murder is still unsolved and she's fearful of her safety and her family's safety. But I had some questions about the case I needed answers to. So I asked her if she could answer those questions and I assured her I wouldn't use her name or even say she cooperated. I understood and I sympathized with her position. And eventually, she did agree to answer those questions, and it helped clear up some of the confusion I had about the case. But anyways, I respected her um, anonymity or um, not to divulge her participation in that. So here's another question a listener had. Hi, Robert. This is Belinda of Bakersfield. I want to say congratulations on one year of Notorious Bakersfield. Thank you for bringing us this interesting side of, of our city. Um, I also wanted to ask you which case has disturbed you the most, which case has impacted you good or bad. Um, thank you again. And congratulations on one year. Thanks, Belinda. Without a doubt, any story that involves the loss of an innocent child, especially those stories when a parent is the perpetrator, it's beyond sad when a parent does something so heinous to their own child. Often these things are a result of the parent getting even or extracting revenge against the other parent. So it's just, and the, and the kids are caught in the middle and are victims. So yeah, it's just so awful that that's any time that it involves a kid. On the flip side, a, a story that has impacted me for the positive um, would be abandoned on the freeway because I was able to uh, locate and talk to um, Jody and clear up clear up some questions we had about that day that she was found when she was a little girl on the side of the freeway. A lot of people in Bakersfield still had a lot of questions about Jody and how she turned out, and so little Jody is is now grandma Jody and has a family of her own. So that, yeah, that was a, that was a positive, you know, on the flip side of that. So thank you, Angelica and uh, Belinda for those questions. If you have a question you'd like to ask me, 
You can do so by going to NotoriousBakersfield.com, look for the microphone icon, click on it, and record your question. Now, I've been made aware that some people are having a hard time recording from their phones, so it probably has to do with a setting in your phone. If you're unable to record from your phone, try it on a computer. It should be easier on the computer. So NotoriousBakersfield.com and um, send me a, a voice message. I'll be happy to answer your questions and play it on a future episode of Notorious Bakersfield. The big story in the news for California the first week of September 1978 was Hurricane Norman. Norman developed into a Category 4 hurricane. It stayed mostly in the southern Pacific, south of the United States. By September 4th, Labor Day that year, the storm system curved northward over cooler waters. With that, Hurricane Norman was downgraded to a tropical storm and eventually broke up. But its remnants combined with a trough over southern and central California. During the Labor Day weekend, some communities in the San Joaquin Valley got over an inch of rain. Even though Bakersfield only got about half of that, the storm still caused havoc on the roadways for Labor Day and the following day. That rainy Tuesday morning after Labor Day, September 5th, 1978, was the beginning of a new school year for most Bakersfield area kids. Pat Laird woke up early that morning to get her family ready for the day. She fixed her husband breakfast before he left for work at 6. After seeing him off, Pat began getting her kids ready. At 7.30, Pat kissed her son Jimmy and daughter Sharon goodbye, handed them their lunches as they rushed out the front door, anxious for the first day of school. That was the last time Sharon and Jimmy kissed their mother. This is Murder on Rosewood Avenue. Philip and Patricia Leard lived in a modest house in the 5400 block of Rosewood Avenue, not far from Morning Drive. By 1978, the couple had been married for 15 years. They had two children, a 13-year-old son named Jimmy and a 10-year-old daughter named Sharon. 35-year-old Philip Leard worked as a tobacco salesman and Pat, 38, was a stay-at-home mom. As a teenager, Pat suffered from encephalitis that left her entire left side of her body paralyzed. As she got older, she was able to regain most of her mobility, except for her left hand. But that didn't keep Pat from keeping an immaculate house. The Leard home was always spotless. On Labor Day weekend in 1978, remnants of Hurricane Norman soaked central California with bursts of heavy rainfall. The Bakersfield area received over a half inch of precipitation from the storm system. Pat woke up early that Tuesday morning after Labor Day, about 4.45 a.m. She fixed her husband breakfast. He had a work-related meeting later that morning in Fresno. 
After Philip left for work at 6 a.m., Pat went about getting her kids, Jimmy and Sharon, ready for their first day of school. She kissed each one and handed them their lunches as they walked out the front door at 7.30 a.m. Being a fastidious housekeeper, once her family was gone, Pat went to work cleaning the house. She made every bed, washed, dried, and put away every dish that was used for breakfast that morning. After putting the house in order, Pat got dressed for a meeting she had planned for later that morning, a meeting of the Women's Auxiliary Club at her church. At 10.30 a.m., a friend came by. As this friend arrived at the Leard house, a man in his 40s was pulling away from the curb in a pickup truck, a white 1950s model Chevy with primer spots. This friend knocked on the front door, but nobody answered, so the friend left. That afternoon, Jimmy got out of school and got a ride home with a friend and his mother. Jimmy wanted to go to his friend's house after school. When they arrived at the Leard home, the friend's mom stayed in the car. It would only take a couple of minutes for the boys to run in to ask permission for Jimmy to come over. This was about 2.30 p.m. The boys burst through the front door to find Patricia Ann Leard lying on the dining room floor. Blood pulled around her body. An article in the Bakersfield Californian in 1978 stated Pat was lying on the floor with her feet and legs propped up on the dining room table. Subsequent accounts say she was seated at the table. Detectives said she wasn't raped, but whoever killed her staged her body to make it appear she had been raped. Kern County coroner determined Pat Leard suffered 19 stab wounds and her throat had been slit. After discovering the grisly scene, the boys frantically turned and ran out of the house. The friend's mother called the sheriff's department. When law enforcement arrived on scene, Jimmy and a neighbor hurriedly intercepted Sharon. Jimmy wanted to spare his younger sister the trauma of what he just experienced. About an hour later, Philip Leard arrived home to discover sheriff's vehicles at his house. The weather system was still making its way across Bakersfield's gray skies when a sheriff's deputy bluntly told Philip that his wife had been murdered. Detectives said there were no signs of forced entry, the presence of the Leards family German shepherd in the backyard would have scared off any intruder if they tried entering through the rear of the house. Investigators believe the person responsible for Pat's murder entered through the front door, either forcibly or by invitation. Two weeks after Pat Leard's homicide, Philip Leard was interviewed by the Bakersfield Californian. During this interview, Philip described the anguish he and his children suffered. He also expressed frustration with the rumors swirling around Bakersfield about who was responsible for his wife's murder. The spouse is always the prime suspect, right? Evidently, there was a strong suspicion that Philip, even though he was in Fresno when his wife was murdered, was the killer. 
According to Pat's siblings, before her death, Pat confided to her mother that she was planning to leave Philip. Pat's mother has since passed away. Decades later, when DNA proved reliable in solving crimes, Kern County detectives took advantage of that opportunity, hoping to finally solve Pat's murder. Detectives petitioned a judge to order Philip Leard and a brother of his to provide DNA samples. The judge granted the detectives' request to swab Philip, but denied the request for Philip's brother. That was July 2004. Investigators felt it was telling that Philip refused to voluntarily submit his DNA. Six months after submitting his DNA for analysis, Philip Leard died from natural causes. When the lab results came back after Philip Leard's death, the findings were inconclusive. A Kern County Sheriff's detective stated, quote, It does not appear his DNA was there on the nylons. They can't find any foreign DNA at all. Unquote. Philip and Pat's daughter Sharon said, quote, I'm resolved to the fact that we'll probably never see this scientifically proven. It's aggravating, but what can you do? Unquote. That was in 2006, and it doesn't appear Pat Leard's murder is any closer to being solved than it was in 1978. Resources used to research this story was the Bakersfield Californian. Thank you for tuning in to the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. I'll be back next week, next Tuesday, to tell you another Notorious Bakersfield story. Have a good week.